Hi, it's the 9th of February, 2019. This is the Room Now podcast. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week in the news, breast implants are back in the news. We got a lot of new information about lupus and some surprising associations. And what's the new best placebo out there? Well, it comes from your pain, Dr. Kali. We'll talk about that and more. Our first report is on a uh, cohort study from a university clinic uh, of almost 500 patients showing that 24% met criteria for fibromyalgia. You know, if you look at any rheumatology clinic, it shows that fibromyalgia is actually one of the major components in most of our clinics. Um, The interesting thing about this study, it looked to show an association between the criteria that are commonly used uh, and a clinical diagnosis as declared by the clinician that being identified as an ICD-10 ICD code of M79.7. So in this study, 24% met fibromyalgia criteria, but only 21% were diagnosed as fibromyalgia by the doctors. In spite of what seems like a pretty good association, the agreement statistic, what's called a, a, a kappa value is only 0.41, was really not so good, suggesting that there's a fair amount of discrepancy. Uh, in this study, they showed that physicians failed to diagnose uh, criteria-positive patients uh, in a substantial number of patients, like it was like 60-plus patients of the 500. Uh, and similarly, a wrong diagnosis uh, was given in patients who were criteria-negative, suggesting that um, there still is a fair amount of misdiagnosis or lack of understanding into what fibromyalgia is in the clinic. Uh, or maybe it's a failure of criteria in helping us in the clinic. Um, this is merits more research. Uh, new information from the CDC, again, on the opioid um, overdose um, problem that we have in our country. In 2017, greater than two-thirds of all overdose deaths in the United States were due to opioids, uh, and that the over- overdose deaths grew a total of 12%. Um, in between 2016 and 2017. That's quite a jump. It was even higher in the elderly, those over age 65, where it was 17.2%. So while the numbers on opioid uh, misuse and death uh, and overdose is really sort of tailing off, it still remains a big public health problem in the United States. Uh, An interesting review from uh, the Royal Adelaide Hospital uh, looked at the association of silicone breast implants in, and rheumatic disease. Uh, and in their large cohort over 17 years of patients that were studied, they found that uh, breast implant patients were more likely to have fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome when compared to one group, scleroderma, but not another group, lupus. Uh, now that's sort of, I put this in there because I think this is what we see, what I see in my clinic, that patients who have uh, silicone breast implants don't really have lupus and and scleroderma-like disease, they tend to have fibromyalgia more than anything else. Uh, And I think it's often overlooked to maybe called other things. An interesting study uh, of patients with the IgG4-related disease syndrome uh, from China looked at 121 patients who are untreated and divided them up into those who had dacroadenitis and sialoadenitis um, to sort of look at a subset and to see if this subset has any other unique associations. And what they did find that in, in that subset of patients, they were more likely to have um, sinonasal involvement, uh, 
eosinophilia and higher IgG4 levels than those than than those that did not have um, dacryadenitis and sialoadenitis. Um, we know we see those in, that those features in sarcoid, but it is one of the features that you can see in the IgG4 related disease um, syndrome. And I think that we're seeing over time that there are sort of subsets of that syndrome that are playing out. Interestingly, many of you have diagnosed such a patient. I think many of you haven't diagnosed such a patient. The question is, um, how do you find them? I think as we better define these subsets, it'll make it easier to make these diagnoses. I recently had a patient, who, for instance, who came to me with retroperitoneal fibrosis, retroperitoneal mass wrapped around the aorta and whatnot, and it turns out it was a gastric cancer uh, with local spread and not IgG4-related disease. So again, these can be hard cases to manage and evaluate. The antiphospholipid syndrome uh, is, uh, has an incidence rate of five per 100,000 patients looking at a population study. And we know what the, the triad there is of thrombotic disease, uh, refractory thrombocytopenia, and recurrent fetal loss. But there are other clinical associations. This very interesting review um, looked at other diagnoses associated with this, and that included uh, valvular disease, lividoreticularis, something called race, race mosa, R-A-C-E-M-O-S-A. Never heard of it, should have looked it up for this report, didn't, tell me what it is. Um, skin ulcerations with necrotic uh, um, uh, ulcerations, glomerulonephritis and thrombotic microangiopathy, of course, AVN and non-traumatic fractures are also in that list of disorders that have been associated with the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Another report looked at the utility of uh, these indices you get with your complete blood counts. This, in this case, they, you know, these investigators looked at 690 patients uh, and, and analyzed their SEDRACE, CRPs, and RDWs um, for the red cell distribution width, showing that RDW, like SEDRACE and CRP, is associated with inflammatory disorders, had a high correlation in RA and SPA patients, uh, and that the RDW had a 48 to 95% sensitivity and a 66 to 95% specificity for inflammatory disease in their analyses, it should be something you look at. Obviously, someone who's got a brand new anemia, RDW may mean something else, but it does go up in our patients with inflammatory disorders and can be a useful biomarker. It could be a very cheap biomarker. Um, how about GCA? Um, there's some talk about GCA maybe being associated with a risk of cancer, and the French um, study group for large vessel vasculitis looked at a small cohort of 49 GCA patients compared it to a larger control group, three to one match controls, and showed that GCA was not associated with a higher risk of cancer uh, and that the values basically, the confidence intervals crossed over one, suggesting there was not a higher risk. I didn't believe there was, and it's kind of comforting to know that these elderly patients with this aggressive vasculitis do not have a higher risk. Now, what about lupus? I got three reports on lupus in this particular edition of the podcast. Kaiser Permanente studied nearly 2,000 patients with lupus and showed that 58% of lupus patients were non-adherent to the simple drug hydroxychloroquine. That's shocking, but it's actually in line with what's seen in other studies of non-compliance and non-adherence. You were non-compliant if you did not take at least 80% of the hydroxychloroquine that was prescribed to you. So 58, almost 60% of patients were not compliant. The factors that were associated with non-compliance or non-adherence was increasing age and increasing numbers of visits. So people were coming to you a lot, which maybe your patients who are sickest or need to see you a lot are actually maybe less compliant. Not predictive, whereas the doctors involved, 
the center that they were being treated for with, at, or other socioeconomic factors which have been sometimes related to non-adherence, non-compliance. Again, this is a major, major battle as we take care of patients with chronic uh, autoimmune and inflammatory disorders. Another study out of Sweden looks at the association between lupus and chronic lung disorders. So they did not enroll patients who had any sort of lung disease at the outset. They looked at incident and prevalent uh, lupus in, and they found a total of 3,200 incident cases. I think there was like 6,600 prevalent cases, cases of uh, lupus in Sweden. And they showed that lung disease was six-fold more common uh, in lupus patients than the controls with an incidence rate of, of 14 per 1,000 patient years. It included a 19-fold higher risk of interstitial lung disease, which I found a little bit surprising. Uh, uh, and I, you certainly know lupus patients can get interstitial lung disease, but it looked like that might be the most common manifestation of, uh, of lung involvement in lupus patients. Um, the last report on lupus looks at fracture risk in lupus. Uh, and this is a, a population-based study, shows that the incidence rate for fracture was highest in lupus patients who have nephritis. Uh, and I think the study here, this is a, this is a claim study, 47,000 lupus patients studied four to one against four controls for every one lupus patient. And they showed that the highest rate of fractures was seen in nephritis patients at 4.6 per 1,000 patient years. Um, uh, and that was the highest rate. Uh, lupus patients generally have a twofold higher risk of fractures compared to match comparators. So, and when you control for comorbidities and glucocorticoids, it attenuates these risks somewhat, but not, not, not to a major degree. So again, you should worry about lupus and it's not just the steroids that are striving that fracture risk. It can be a number of other factors, especially their nephritis. And lastly, um, there's a report out on um, compounded pain creams being no more uh, effective than placebos. You know, these compounded pain creams are often advertised or um, uh, prescribed by doctors who work in pain clinics for either neuropathic pain, where they use concoctions of ketamine, gabapentin, clonidine, and lidocaine, for nociceptive pain, where they use ketoprofen, baclofen, cyclobenzaprine, and lidocaine, or mixed pain, you know, all of those in, you know, in various combinations. The interesting thing is that these pennies to cents drugs are mixed together and sold at a premium price, a knockout price, like, you know, um, you know thousands of dollars a bottle. And um, it used to be that they were being paid for by managed care. I find that very few managed care companies are paying for these, and patients sometimes are paying for them uh, cash out of pocket. And they've gone into disfavor in many places, in many corners. And, you know, the FDA is looking at this. The FDA is looking at the uh, the use of these kind of uh, of, of concoctions um, uh, and whether it's legitimate or not. But in this particular study of almost 400 patients, they showed that in their primary outcome of being uh, pain reduction, that a significant response was seen with the pain cream in 36% of patients, and it was 28% in those on placebo. And again, that was not significant. So I haven't used these. I strongly dissuade patients from using these. There are either over-the-counter preparations like capsaicin or prescription pain creams like lidocaine uh, and um, one that eludes me right now that are out there that you can certainly use. Uh, the diclofenac creams uh, are, are, and they can be expensive too, but certainly not expensive as these mixed uh, compounded pain creams. Anyway, that's it for this week on the Room Now podcast. Go to roomnow.live to check out our meeting. You can go to the website to get these links and read more about these particular reports. 
Uh, we'll talk to you next week on Room Now Podcast.